the scale and the extent of this disaster is is really enormous it's uh, spread over a very very large geographic area it is affecting a very huge population monsoon rains have caused extreme flooding in pakistan this summer it's monday august 29th this is wbur's all things considered good afternoon i'm steve brown coming up Flooding in Pakistan has left more than a thousand people dead since June. We'll hear about relief efforts in the region. Also ahead, a new poll notes that fear is a rising reality among people of color. Americans of color were more likely than white Americans to say they feared being threatened or physically attacked. And most people think sweat can be stinky, and we work hard to remove that smell, but could a stinky sweat actually be a signal for something good? It's 401, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Justice Department says some of the documents gathered during its search of former President Donald Trump's home may be covered under attorney-client privilege. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports today marks three weeks since the FBI executed a search warrant on Trump's Palm Beach estate. A judge in Florida has said she's inclined to appoint an independent special master to review the documents as Trump's lawyers have requested. But federal prosecutors say a special team has already completed a review of the papers. The Justice Department says they found only a limited number of documents that could potentially be covered by attorney-client privilege. DOJ and intelligence officials continue to review the classification levels of the documents. The director of national intelligence is also assessing the national security risks that could have resulted from disclosure of the materials. Lawyers for the government and former President Donald Trump are due in court later this week. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. NASA was forced to postpone the long-awaited launch of its new moon rocket today. Just minutes before the countdown at the Kennedy Space Center, the agency scrubbed the mission, citing a combination of issues. Artemis mission manager Mike Serafin says crews are working to correct the problem. The team worked through a number of issues today. Uh, The team was tired at the end of the day, and we just decided that it was the best to knock it off and uh, to reconvene tomorrow. NASA is aiming to try again on Friday if the team can resolve the problems within the next 48 to 72 hours. The test launch is part of a broader effort to send astronauts around the moon in 2024 and to land them there as early as 2025. Roads and neighborhoods are flooded in Mississippi after days of torrential rainfall. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports officials say more than 100 homes are in danger of flooding. The Pearl River is overflowing its banks in and around Jackson, Mississippi's capital. The mayor has urged several residential areas to evacuate as the waters rise. A downtown bridge is closed and several roadways are submerged. The river is forecast to crest just under major flood stage level. Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves declared a state of emergency over the weekend, and emergency officials distributed sandbags to help protect homes and businesses. Jackson Public Schools have shifted to virtual virtual learning for students who attend schools in the flood zone. The region suffered heavy flood damage in 2020. Debbie Elliott, NPR News. Stocks are trading lower on Wall Street at this hour. At last check, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was down 184 points. The Nasdaq Composite also trading lower, down 124. The S&P 500 down 27 points. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Boston City Council President Ed Flynn is temporarily stripping Councilor Ricardo Arroyo of his leadership of two committees and his position as Council Vice Chair. Arroyo, who's running for Suffolk County District Attorney, is facing questions after two sexual assault investigations from more than a decade ago resurfaced last week. WBUR's Walter Wuthman has more. The investigations into Arroyo never led to charges, but have now blown open the DA's race. Several high-profile allies quickly pulled their endorsements of Arroyo, including Council President Flynn. Now, Flynn thinks it's in the best interest of the council to strip Arroyo of his leadership roles. Arroyo says the removals have no grounds and will impact his work on the redistricting committee. Arroyo denies the allegations and accuses acting DA Kevin Hayden, or one of his campaign supporters, of leaking the files for political benefit. Hayden says his office did not leak the documents. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. 5 p.m. is the deadline to apply for a vote-by-mail ballot for next week's primary election in Massachusetts. Secretary of State Bill Galvin says it must be in the hands of local election officials by this afternoon. And because of that, he's recommending that you return your application using a city or town drop box or fill out an application online on the Secretary of State's website. South Boston Congressman Steve Lynch is leading an effort to increase oversight of a company that offers buy-now-pay-later financing on gun purchases. Lynch and more than a dozen other members of Congress have sent a letter to Cordova Financial. It asks the company for information on how many customers default on the no-interest loans and whether there are any protections to prevent guns from being immediately resold. Lynch says he's worried the easy lending arrangements will result in increased gun violence and mass shootings. A Cambridge police officer has pleaded not guilty to drunk driving charges. Investigators say 57-year-old Michael Danalik ran a red light this morning and crashed into three motorcyclists at Broadway and Columbia Streets. All those were hurt are expected to survive. The officer was off duty and is now on administrative leave. In sports, the Red Sox are out in Minnesota to take on the Twins tonight. The forecast, mostly cloudy tonight. The lows around 72 degrees. Mostly sunny tomorrow. The highs around 90. Sunny again on Wednesday. Some showers or thunderstorms are likely the high of 89. Right now, 88 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Indeed. Designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. When we haven't been talking this summer about extreme drought, we've been talking about extreme flooding. The latter is what's happening now in many parts of Pakistan. Huge monsoon rains have led to flooding that has killed over 1,100 people in the country since June. About half a million people are displaced and living in refugee camps now. Many more are with friends or relatives. And more heavy rain is expected in September. Farah Noreen is the Mercy Corps Director for Pakistan. She joins us now from Islamabad, Pakistan. Welcome. Thank you very much, Elsa. Can you just tell us, Vada, what is it like where you are right now? Can you just paint a picture of what you're seeing at the moment? Yes, yes, I would very much like to do that. Um, uh, What happened uh, this summer uh, was a very early start of monsoon. So it it started somewhere in June, where normally it would start in, in July. And then we saw a pretty much unstoppable rain in large parts of the country, especially in the south. Mm-hmm. So provinces like uh, Balochistan, 
uh, sees very little uh, rainfall and this time around the rain has been going on for the last two months and uh, more and more areas are coming underwater because of, uh, of the flash flooding. And what we're seeing now is large population displaced because of the floods and many of them residing in kind of makeshift tents by the sides of the roads or in schools or in other places where they're finding safety. Right. I know that right now you're coordinating a response for all the people who have been displaced by this flooding. About how many households do you estimate you'll be working with in the coming weeks and months? So one thing that I would like to highlight is that the scale uh, and the extent of this disaster is is, is really enormous. It's uh, spread over a very, very large geographic area. It is affecting a very huge population. Uh, Mercy Corps has been present in some of these flood-affected areas from before with our ongoing programming, especially our health programs. So uh, we are responding in, in one particular part of Balochistan by providing the immediate relief that's needed to the affected population, such as food and other items, especially health and hygiene related items that the population needs. And and how challenging is it getting food and water right now? to the hardest hit areas? So access definitely is an issue uh, for two reasons. The the roads have been damaged and are underwater and then the, the, the flood water itself. And, and we are trying to reach a lot of this population. We have mm-hmm. existing uh, presence in many of these areas and we're able to collaborate uh, with the uh, local health department, the government health department to bring health services to the communities, uh, especially those who are in tents or in a, in a camp situation. Well, of course, what you're seeing, this more intense flooding now, it's an expected consequence of climate change. And I know that you and your organization point out that Pakistan contributes less than 1% of the world's carbon emissions. So let me ask you, if it were up to you, what would you ask of countries with higher carbon emissions? What would you ask them to do to help Pakistan deal with a crisis like this? I think what's happening in Pakistan is a clear indication of where the world is headed. And I would like to remind uh, the wealthier nations uh, to to really pay attention to what's happening in the world because because of the climate change and and make responsible decisions. The world uh, is coming in aid of Pakistan. We are hoping that more money will be mobilized, but that is to provide relief and I hope eventually recovery uh, to this population. But that's not going to address the underlying. Right. Uh, issue. So so I would just like to remind uh, everybody to pay attention to what's really causing it. That is Farah Noreen from the humanitarian organization Mercy Corps speaking to us from Islamabad, Pakistan. Thank you very much. Thank you. More than a quarter of American adults say they live in fear of being attacked in their own neighborhoods. That's according to a poll by NPR, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. NPR's Alana Weiss reports. Americans of color were more likely than white people to say they feared being threatened or physically attacked. 19% of white Americans say they had this concern, compared to 25 and 26% of black and Latino respondents. 21% of Asian adults shared that concern. None, however, said they lived in fear more than Native Americans, of whom 36% said they were fearful for their personal safety. You know, growing up, we went through the era when it was, you know, just open racism about being Alaska Native. Paul Ongtaguk is an Inuit man living in Anchorage. 
He said that because many people are unfamiliar with the appearance of Alaskan natives, they often make crude guesses and stereotypes about his race. Well, this one was really weird. I was in Philadelphia. Somebody asked me if I was an octorine. I had to look it up. Reports of hate crimes have spiked in recent years. This includes recent violent attacks on Asian Americans and the racist massacre at a Buffalo grocery store. At 65, Ongtaguk says he thinks he's aged out of some of the more overt attacks that pockmarked his youth. But he still fears for younger family members. I could think at some point people just realize, oh, that's just an older person. No reason to get all in somebody's face. Annette Jackson is also in her mid-60s, living 4,000 miles southeast in Texas. In her small town, Jackson, who is mixed race, says that her concerns have only grown in recent years. She has black, white, Hispanic, and Native American ancestry, and says she presents as a woman of color. I would hesitate to call the police in fear they shoot me instead of the person I'm calling the police on. There are people that ride around with the Confederate flags hanging off the back of their trucks. And, you know, I don't feel safe in America. Jackson says she noticed it especially after the 2016 presidential race. The night after Donald Trump's victory, Jackson says a man assaulted her in Walmart. He said Trump won and then he spit in my face. Oh, my God. It's like Trump won, so they had a right to treat me any kind of way. Jackson's example was extreme, but indicative of the sort of fray in social norms that appears to be fueling widespread fear. For Bernardo Medina, his view on the root cause of these tensions is the opposite. The criminals are empowered. And the good people have to live in fear. Medina is a Puerto Rican-born American living in New Jersey. He says he fears greatly for national security and blamed Democrats in power for endangering the public. Medina pointed to the 2020 Black Lives Matter protests as proof of social discord. They deceived a lot of people with their nice talk and then took the money. So it's all a hoax. It's all a game. These protests, however, were overwhelmingly peaceful and came in response to state violence against black people. Ernesto is a black man living in the suburbs of Philadelphia. He requested to only be identified by his first name. He said that in his 37 years of life, he has never seen the public discourse dissolve this badly. I never felt discriminated against. I knew it existed, but I never felt it directly against me. Whereas now, I'm afraid that it will be because you hear about it so much more and so often. Ernesto said he and his wife have begun stockpiling supplies since the pandemic. And in recent years, he has taken firearm safety classes to prepare himself in the event that he might have to use his gun. I think the pandemic made me realize that we haven't made the progress that we did before. There's no such thing as the truth or fact anymore. And that's scary. The poll was conducted between June and July and included a sample of 4,192 adults. Alana Wise, NPR News, Washington. This summer, NPR's Science Desk is reporting on something we all need to stay alive but often take for granted. We're talking about sweat, you know, that wet stuff on your skin that cools you off. Well, it turns out that our sweat has another function, one that's invisible but super important. NPR's Michaeline Duclef explains why stinky sweat can actually be a signal of something good. Back in college, I had an embarrassing moment. 
My girlfriend borrowed my backpack for a weekend trip, and when she gave it back to me, she said, Michaeline, you must sweat a lot because your backpack stinks. The arm straps smell like onions. Ew! Her exact words may have been a little different, but you get the idea. As I stood there, I remember thinking, does my sweat really smell that bad? No, I don't think it does. It certainly doesn't have these really stinky, odorous molecules. That's Gavin Thomas. He's a microbiologist at York University, and he studies sweat. He says human sweat on its own is actually pretty much odorless. So most sweat is salty water. That's the sweat that cools you down. But, and that's not what we're interested in. We're interested in this other type of sweat, which is produced in our underarms. This other type of sweat contains not just salty water, but also a whole cornucopia of molecules, oils, proteins, and fats. The bacteria living on our skin eat some of these compounds, and they're the ones that stink. Thomas and his colleagues have found one species of bacteria in particular, called Staphylococcus hominins, generates a very pungent odor. We've had people describe it as kind of a oniony smell, I mean, a cheesy oniony smell. They do smell pretty bad. So it's this little critter that made my backpack smell like onions. Okay, now before you start scrubbing down with antibacterial soap, there's something you need to know. These bacteria are really good for you and your skin. Without them, you're in trouble. That's Richard Gallo. He's a dermatologist at the University of California, San Diego. He and his colleagues have found that these bacteria actually help protect our skin from problems like eczema. And they also... They basically make a type of antibiotic. Which kills some dangerous microbes that can make you really sick. Gallo and his colleagues have also found that your body itself makes antimicrobial molecules and puts them inside your sweat. Mix all of that together and... Sweat is a almost like an antibiotic juice. And as the water evaporates those antibiotics actually increase in, in concentration. So the next time you're hot, sticky, and maybe a little stinky, before you towel off, thank your sweat and the bacteria that eat it for helping to keep your skin safe and healthy. Michaeline Ducleff, NPR News. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up on All Things Considered, how in-person mental health services remain scarce in some rural areas. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Rose Art Museum, presenting Peter Sachs, Resistance, an exhibition paying tribute to resistors of oppression. Free tickets at brandeis.edu slash rose. In business news, Boston-based alcohol delivery service Drizzly has launched a new effort to support alcohol brands owned by members of underrepresented groups. It's funding a new business accelerator program and has created a hub on its online platform to spotlight and support brands owned by people of color or who are LGBTQ. Grizzly says the goal of the effort is to remove barriers to the alcoholic beverage industry. On Wall Street, stocks were off today. The Dow down 184 points, or 0.57%, at 32,100. NASDAQ was off 124 points, or 0.66%, at 12,018. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource. Energy is at the center of how we live today. And with global energy prices increasing, the impact to families can be significant. Eversource may be able to help with their flexible payment plan options. For more information and to see if you qualify, visit Eversource.com. Join On Point host Meghna Chakrabarty on Wednesday, September 7th for a free discussion with epidemiologists exploring the state of infectious diseases as we head into fall. Details at WBUR.org slash events. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com. From Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the Lemelson Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. One of the goals of the new 988 National Suicide Hotline system is to make it easier for those experiencing a mental health crisis to get the help they need. But in rural states like Montana, the in-person resources to respond to and treat those people calling for help are often insufficient or non-existent. Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton explains. Randy Larimer lives in Bozeman, one of Montana's largest cities. Still, he has struggled to find help when his adult child has experienced a mental health crisis. With bipolar 2, um, basically what our family member has is a manic episode where they can run for weeks without sleep. He says these episodes have led to suicide attempts. Mental health professionals say crisis systems need three components. Someone for people to call, someone to physically respond, and somewhere for people to go for treatment. Montana does pretty well with that first step. Their three crisis call centers tied into the 988 system de-escalate about two-thirds of callers, according to state data. But Larimer says when that call isn't enough, it's usually police that respond, and his family winds up in the emergency room, where the search begins for a mental health facility. But many in Montana have struggled to remain open due to staffing shortages and funding difficulties. And a lot of times you spend a significant amount of time literally begging for a a bed at a unit that can offer the help that your loved one needs. And things are even more difficult in largely rural eastern Montana. Brenda Neeland is CEO of the Eastern Montana Community Mental Health Center, which doesn't offer crisis services. She says her clients are usually hundreds of miles away from the nearest mental health facility, where wait lists can be three weeks long. That's a reality in eastern Montana that we face every single day. Rural communities across the country face these sorts of challenges, says Ben Miller, a psychologist and national mental health policy advocate. I'm afraid that what's going to happen is that a lot of individuals are going to continue to show up in the emergency department from their call to 988 or 911 unless we have a place that we can send them. He says they don't get the help they need that way and could face worse consequences like being jailed. Miller also points to research that shows one in four fatal law enforcement shootings involve someone with a serious mental illness. 
The ideal, Miller says, would be for states to offer mobile crisis units to de-escalate someone or transport them to a regional crisis bed where they can receive treatment. In Montana, most of the state's six crisis teams are in urban areas that can afford them. But the state is modifying its Medicaid plan to add a new source of funding. Melissa Higgins with the Montana State Health Department hopes that will increase the number of teams, especially in rural areas. Um, certainly it's, it's dependent upon each community um, and their resources, but that would be the ideal result. As for crisis treatment facilities, which have been dwindling, Higgins says the state will offer more grant funding for mental health providers to stand up additional beds. But mental health providers say that funding isn't enough. Brenda Neeland in eastern Montana says if her organization were going to start offering crisis beds in rural areas, they'd need a much larger infusion of cash. Eastern Montana Community Mental Health Center, just like every other social service provider in the state, is struggling to hire and retain employees, ever rising costs. Now is really a difficult time to look at taking on an endeavor like that. The state has an ongoing assessment that could offer up some potential solutions for the crisis system ahead of next year's legislative session. But what the legislature will fund is still unclear. For NPR News, I'm Aaron Bolton in Columbia Falls, Montana. This is what a classical guitarist usually sounds like. We're listening to Sean Sheba playing Spanish music from an album he released last year. Now the young Scottish guitarist has a brand new recording, and our reviewer, NPR's Tom Heisinga, says we're in for a wonderful surprise. Sean Sheba's new album is titled Lost and Found. One thing he apparently lost was his traditional nylon-strung classical guitar. What he found was this instead. That's the sound of a sleek black Mexican Stratocaster, which Sheba plays throughout the album. The song here is by Chick Corea. And if you think electric guitars are only for shredding and blasting big noise, think again. In Sheba's arrangement of a piece by jazz pianist Bill Evans, the textures are gauzy and the colors are muted. I've rarely heard an electric guitar sound so featherlight. There's a chameleon-like duality to much of Lost and Found, and it's inspired by 18th century poet William Blake, whose metaphysical work plays with opposites and disguise. Here, electric guitars don't sound like themselves, and Sheba, perhaps mirroring some of Blake's paintings, appears androgynous on the album cover, swathed in a pink tulle dress. Another touchstone of mysticism is the medieval abbess Hildegard von Bingen, whose music gets a plugged-in makeover. In place of sacred vocals, Sheba offers a psychedelic swirl of celestial light, a kind of starway to heaven. (music) 
Sheba says this album is an overflowing toy box, but actually it unfolds like a clever mixtape. Music by Meredith Monk and Olivier Messiaen rub elbows with Julius Eastman and Moondog, the Viking-clad composer who, beginning in the 1940s, performed on the streets of Manhattan and slept in doorways. His lighthearted love song, High on a Rocky Ledge, thanks to Sheba's poignant strumming, takes on the gravitas of a solemn prayer. the album, the guitar substitutes for other instruments by way of Sheba's crafty arrangements. But there is one piece, Continuance, written for the guitarist by the young British composer Daniel Kadane. Listen to these meditative chords, pierced with beams of multicolored light. Sean Sheba's Lost and Found is a beguiling album, where music of innocence and experience interlace, and where a masterful, mercurial artist compels us to hear a classical guitarist in new ways. The album is Lost and Found by Sean Sheba. Our reviewer is NPR's Tom Heisinger. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBURN, WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. It's 429. Ahead on All Things Considered, it has been a year since the U.S. withdrew its troops from Afghanistan. Some of the United States' strongest allies were vocal in their criticism, but how do they view the U.S. today? That's just ahead here on WBUR. It'll be mostly cloudy tonight. The lows around 72, mostly sunny tomorrow, a high around 90 degrees, mostly sunny again on Wednesday. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. In my job, balance is really important. I'm Aisha Roscoe, host of Weekend Edition. So when I look at my old minivan, I'm balancing on the one hand, new car payment, and on the other, driving around for another year with that smell of spilled milk in the back. Whenever the balance tips for your old car, give it a chance to do one more good deed. Donate it to this station and turn it into the programs we all love. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The federal government will stop shipping those free COVID-19 test kits to people's homes later this week. The Biden administration attributes the program's suspension to a lack of funding from Congress to replenish the nation's stockpile. White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre says there are some alternative ways to still get a hold of the COVID-19 test kits. Americans will continue to have other options uh, for free testing, including free at-home tests through private insurance, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, and 1,500 community-based free testing sites, so that is available. The White House sent out the first round of free test kits back in January, and by May, about 350 million kits had been given to 70 million households. 
The program will continue accepting orders until Friday. That's when the program comes to an official end. In Georgia, Governor Brian Kemp will have to testify before a special grand jury that's investigating interference in the 2020 election, but not until after the November midterms. As Susanna Capaluto tells us of member station WABE, Kemp had sought to withdraw his subpoena. After the 2020 election, Kemp had resisted pressure from former President Donald Trump to call a special legislative session after Trump lost Georgia by about 12,000 votes. Kemp, a Republican, said he has sovereign immunity as governor, claiming he is not compelled to testify before the special grand jury about conversations he may have had with the Trump campaign and others about possible election interference. A judge disagreed, has ordered Kemp to testify, but not until after the November 8th election. The judge said he did not want the grand jury investigation to be used by anyone to influence the outcome of the election. Kemp is facing Democrat Stacey Abrams. For NPR News, I'm Susanna Capoluto in Atlanta. Stocks finished lower to start the week on Wall Street today. The Dow lost 184 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is asking for federal and state help to reverse service cuts on the MBTA. T leaders said last week that subway, subway lines and 43 bus routes will run at reduced frequency this fall. The T is citing staffing shortages. The mayor today is asking the Biden administration, the state's congressional delegation, and the MBTA to work together to accelerate hiring. She also wants public progress reports on hiring. Thousands of purple flags are planted on Boston Commons Liberty Mall in front of the State House. They are there to remember the Massachusetts residents who died over the past 10 years from drug overdoses. Deirdre Calvert is director of the Bureau of Substance Addiction Services for the Department of Public Health. She hopes the 20,000 newly planted flags will bring overdoses and addictions to the forefront. Remembrance, memory, awareness, compassion, that maybe this visual representation will, will startle people maybe, that this is, this is how many lives we've just lost in the last 10 years. So I'm, whatever this means to people, I just hope it means something. Calvert says tables are also set up on the common for people to access treatment information and ways to get help. Cambridge will be getting its drinking water from the Massachusetts Water Resources Authority, or MWRA, beginning tomorrow. That's because a water test came back high for PFAS chemicals. Those chemicals don't break down over time, and studies have linked them to health problems. Cambridge Water Department Managing Director Sam Corda says that the city is making the change, even though the state has questioned the accuracy of the test. Typically in Cambridge, we've had higher numbers in September than any any other month of the year. So to make sure that no one has any issues, especially the sensitive population, which would be pregnant women, infants, and immune deficient individuals, we're being proactive in switching over to the MWRA water. Corda says Cambridge will remain on MWRA water until new filters can be installed to remove PFAS chemicals from its original supply. Sports, the Red Sox play the Twins tonight out in Minnesota. The forecast, mostly cloudy tonight. The lows will be around 72. Mostly sunny tomorrow. The highs will be around 90 degrees. Mostly sunny again Wednesday. Some showers or thunderstorms are likely before 1 p.m. The highs will be around 89 degrees. Right now it's 87 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. 
from Focus Features, presenting Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul, a comedy about a mega church pastor and his wife who'll do whatever it takes to save their congregation. In theaters and streaming on Peacock Friday. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. One year ago tomorrow, on August 30th, 2021, the final U.S. troops left Afghanistan. The chaotic end to America's longest war was marked by unfulfilled promises, a Taliban takeover, frantic airlifts out of Kabul, and a terrorist attack that killed more than 100 Afghans and 13 U.S. service members. For President Biden, it was a major stain on his reputation, not just here at home, but with European partners who were close allies in Afghanistan. NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid has been looking into this. Hey, Asma. Hi there, Ari. So some of the U.S.'s strongest allies a year ago were vocal in their criticism of the Afghan exit. Take us back to that time. That's right. And in part, that's because two months before this withdrawal, Joe Biden went to the United Kingdom for his first in-person G7 meeting as president. And you probably recall, he declared very proudly that America is back. Uh, But then we heard Brits wondering out loud, you know, if you look at Afghanistan, is that really true? And one member of parliament there in the United Kingdom wrote an op-ed saying, quote, if the U.S. won't lead, it is our duty to step up. Uh, Even the Germans were critical. The chancellor at the time describe this all as bitter, dramatic, and terrifying. What exactly made them so upset? You know, Ari, it was not just the decision, but the way that the decision was handled. Uh, James Cunningham was a former U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan, and he explained it to me this way. It's no secret that most of our coalition partners and allies wanted us to stay. They wanted to stay because they saw quite clearly what was going to happen, and Many of them live closer to Afghanistan than we do, and they're going to feel the effects of this more directly. Experts have told me that the reason European allies felt so blindsided was because Biden had promised multilateralism when he came into office, and then he kind of made this entire Afghanistan decision rather unilaterally. And so now, one year later, how is the relationship with those European allies? So Ari, really, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has shifted the paradigm entirely. Uh, Charles Kupchin with the Council on Foreign Relations actually argues that with the benefit of hindsight, the U.S. did not lose the credibility that was initially expected. And if anything, he says uh, the U.S. now has more money, more strategic attention, and more political capital to focus on other global priorities. Lo and behold, not long after the withdrawal from Afghanistan, Russia invades Ukraine and the United States has been freed up from Afghanistan to focus like a laser on supporting Ukraine and putting together a very solid coalition. And President Biden has made it a point to coordinate with allies in Europe in responding to Russia. You know, at times he's even let the Germans or the French take the lead rather publicly. But I should say, you know, there's not consensus that this has necessarily erased all of the anxiety around Afghanistan. Uh, Some experts say that there is this question of whether Russia acted in part because it had presumed the U.S. was weaker after the Afghan withdrawal. And, you know, likewise, if China has felt emboldened with Taiwan as a result. So are the experts you're talking to saying that Biden's role in Ukraine basically erased the allies' anxiety coming out of Afghanistan? You know, the relationship today is certainly stronger than where it was a year ago, but one expert told me that European nations still have nagging doubts about whether the U.S. has the patience for long fights. Uh, Catherine Kluver-Ashbrook is with the Burlsman Foundation in Berlin. 
the Germans are afraid of waning American commitment because of American electoral politics and policy. And really what she's saying, Ari, here is that some of these reservations aren't about Biden himself. They're about whether Donald Trump or one of his followers could take power in a couple of years and decide then that a transatlantic friendship is no longer worth the time and the money. NPR's Asma Khalid, thank you. My pleasure. No major U.S. city gets more days with triple-digit heat than Phoenix. And that heat is leading to more and more deaths. Homeless advocates say one major issue is that not only does Arizona have too much hot weather, it also doesn't have enough homes. From member station KJZZ, Catherine Davis-Young reports. It's a hot morning and Paul Yeager is getting his vitals checked at a mobile clinic providing care to homeless patients. He's 64, he's HIV positive, and on most nights he sleeps in a park nearby. He credits this team with keeping him alive. I got a lot of life to live. And with God's help, maybe they can live another 10 years. But surviving summers in Phoenix without shelter is hard. Back in July, when temperatures here stayed above 110 for over a week, Jaeger says he collapsed and couldn't get up for hours. I'm not good anyhow, so it's just, it's not good, not healthy to be out. It's kind of what. The heat is harming more and more Arizonans. From 2005 to 2015, the Phoenix metro area averaged 78 heat-associated deaths per year. But the death toll has reached a record high every summer since. Last year, there were an unprecedented 339 heat deaths. 2022 is on track to be even deadlier. This is a really bad summer for us. Dr. Kevin Foster directs the Arizona Burn Center. Pavement can heat up to over 150 degrees in the Phoenix sun. Every year, Foster treats patients who fall, can't get up, and develop severe burns. But Foster says patient demographics are changing. In the past, patients were usually older adults. Now they're younger, often homeless, and more of their falls are related to drug use. They go down and they stay down for a long time, and then they end up not only getting really bad burns, but they suffer heat prostration and heat stroke. You know, oftentimes their temperatures come in and they're 108 or 109 degrees Fahrenheit. County records show heat deaths are increasingly occurring outdoors among unhoused people. About 60% of cases involve substance use. My interpretation is the increase is much more related to what's happening with social services than it is related to climate. David Hondula is director of Phoenix's newly launched Office of Heat Response and Mitigation. His goal is to reduce heat fatalities. He's concerned that already hot temperatures here are rising. The National Weather Service projects Phoenix will average more than 120 days per year with triple-digit heat by the end of this decade. But Hondula is more troubled by another trend. As housing prices have skyrocketed, the region's unsheltered population has tripled since 2016. That's turning heat into a more critical threat. The unsheltered community is at about 200 to 300 times higher risk than the rest of the population. It's not just the long hours spent outdoors. Hondula says people without shelter also have limited access to medical care, increased likelihood of chronic health problems, and high rates of addiction, all of which can raise risk. Dehydration and exhaustion can also be disastrous for mental health, says psychiatric nurse practitioner Nina Gomez back at the mobile clinic run by the nonprofit Circle the City. The stress from the heat really exacerbates psychosis and 
then it becomes so much harder to get people in and to engage in any services. The city of Phoenix is making large investments to address the housing crisis, but these issues can't be solved overnight. So for now, organizations like Circle the City try to deliver short-term solutions. We're trying to intervene early, so get people hydrated, get them some food, see if they need anything before it gets to a full crisis. And as hot weather drags on, unsheltered people at the clinic say they'll drink water, keep a hat on, and just try to stay cool. For NPR News, I'm Katherine Davis-Young in Phoenix. This is NPR News. Germany has approved energy-saving measures for the winter that will limit heating and lighting for public buildings. It may not be enough to meet demand. Germany depends on Russia for a third of its natural gas, and because of tensions over the war, Russia could turn the gas spigot off at any time. NPR's Rob Schmitz reports on Germany's dwindling energy options. It's market day in Berlin's Kreuzberg neighborhood, but Ulrike Steinke isn't buying much. Yeah, auf jeden Fall. The retired kindergarten teacher says her pension is not big enough for the rising price of food nor energy. I'm really worried about the winter. My place is drafty, so I'm considering living in the smallest room, the one that heats up quickly. I'll probably leave the heating off in the rest of the apartment. These are the choices facing millions of Germans as the price of energy has risen four times that from a year ago. The government has urged citizens to turn off lights and take shorter showers, and citizens have urged their government to hurry up and find reliable energy alternatives to Russian gas. That's why some were surprised when Germany's economy minister announced the country would not extend the life of its three remaining nuclear power plants scheduled to shut down at the end of the year. We do not need any further use of the nuclear power plants beyond their current legal lifetime, simply because... uh, Gas is only partially used in the power sector. Franziska Holtz is an energy expert at the German Institute for Economic Research. She says only a third of Germany's natural gas is used to generate electricity, and Germany's replacing that by burning more coal. That's why she says extending the life of nuclear power plants won't make a difference. The problem, she says, is that another third of Germany's natural gas is used solely for heating homes and offices. And that is really a part of our gas demand where it's hard to say bring that to zero. So uh, if we want to keep households at least a little bit warm, we need to keep those plants running. Holtz is confident there won't be any electricity blackouts in Germany this winter. She's less confident German industry, which relies on the remaining third of natural gas, will have what it needs to get itself through the winter. To ensure it does, she says Germans will have to further cut their use of natural gas. Of course, like we need to deal with the gas crisis we are now facing in the short term. But at the same time, we still, have, we still have this other crisis we're facing, which is the climate crisis. Helena Marshall, spokesperson for climate group Fridays for Future, says as Germany's government scrambles to find quick solutions to its energy woes, it should keep the climate in mind. Example, Germany's decision to burn more coal to get out of its current predicament. Increasing coal production for a short amount of time, like to address the short-term energy crisis, is fine as long as those additional emissions that are now being put out through that are reduced in another sector or like in the next few years are reduced. But that, she says, would require trusting the German government to do that. And we don't have that trust, right? Because it does not look like the government is taking the situation of multiple crises that we find ourselves in very seriously. 
Back at the market in Kreuzberg, Ulrike Steinke agrees. On the one hand, we need to source energy quickly. On the other hand, the money the government is throwing at fossil fuels and maybe even nuclear power plants should be invested in renewables so that we have options in the near future. Sure, Germans will have to tighten their belts for a couple of winters, but the retired teacher poses the question, wouldn't it be a good lesson for us? Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Berlin. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. 86 degrees in Boston at 448. Ahead on All Things Considered, how a murder victim's brother picked up on some clues to change loopholes in Tennessee law. That's just ahead here on WBUR. Getting laid off is lousy, no doubt about it, but luckily there are plenty of jobs companies are still trying really hard to to find workers and fill those open roles. I'm Kai Rizdal jumping back into the workforce next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy tonight with lows around 72 degrees. Mostly sunny tomorrow, the highs will be around 90. Mostly sunny again on Wednesday with some showers or thunderstorms, likely before 1 p.m. The highs will be around 89 degrees. Thursday should be sunny, temperature around 83. Sunny and a bit cooler, around 80 degrees on Friday. Right now, it's 86 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. And Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business. Powering possibilities. Whales migrate along routes thousands of miles long, oceanic superhighways that also happen to be corridors of human disruption. When we think about conserving whales, we don't think about changing the whale's behavior. What we need to do is modify what people do. Protecting whale superhighways, that's On Point, tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Marie Varsos would have turned 33 years old today. But last year, the Nashville woman and her mother were shot and killed by Marie's estranged husband. Before their deaths, records show that Marie exhausted every option available to victims of domestic violence to try and prevent what she saw coming. But the system failed to protect her. From member station WPLN in Nashville, Paige Flager reports on how Marie's brother is fighting for changes to protect others. And just a warning to our listeners, this story contains descriptions of domestic violence. After losing his mother and his sister, Alex Jan was overcome with grief. It was like being trapped in some horribly tragic movie. It just hasn't seemed real, and it still doesn't seem real, and it's been hard to sort of process it. To try and cope, Alex says he kept himself busy, 
So much had to get done, planning their funerals, settling their estates. It was during this process that he found something that spurred him to turn that grief into action. He remembers opening his sister Marie's laptop. It was locked. But then there, by the trackpad, was a sticky note with her computer password on it. It was almost like a a sign that she wanted me to have access to her computer. And on that computer, Marie had been documenting her husband Sean Varsos' abuse and her efforts to escape it. She left notes to herself. She had texts from Sean. She even made audio recordings of some of their fights and Sean's threats. It sort of weirdly sort of turned into solving a murder mystery. Marie had left a trail, and Alex decided he was going to follow it, retracing the steps Marie took to get protection from law enforcement and the courts. And through that process, I discovered the irregularities, the loopholes, and the, and the failures in, in the system. Failures that he believes led to the deaths of his sister and their mother, Debbie Sisko. On March 7th of last year, Marie and Sean had a horrible argument. In recordings found on Marie's computer, she shouts, Stop! Don't put your hands on me! Before Sean strangles her. She passed out, and when she came to, he was holding a gun to her head. He threatened to kill her, her family, and himself. Experts say strangulation and threats with a gun are two of the biggest warning signs that a domestic violence case could become lethal. And the police should have responded urgently, but they didn't. Metro Nashville Police Fire and Medical Marie escaped from Sean, and an hour later, she and her family sat in a pickup truck outside an empty police station trying to file a police report. Bruises were forming on Marie's neck, and Debbie was in the back seat comforting her. But on calls to police, dispatchers tell them they have to wait. And they're working on getting out there to you. There's just nobody in the precinct right now. Um, so what's going to happen is a patrol car is going to have to free up from whatever they're doing and come to you. Got it. Um, but they do have to take those life-threatening emergencies first. Alex, Marie, and their mom, Debbie, were in disbelief. Didn't her case qualify as life-threatening? Alex kept calling for hours. You can hear his frustration in one of those calls. I'm trying to be as appreciative and waiting as long as possible, but my sister was choked out to where she passed out, and her husband threatened to shoot her and had threatened to shoot himself. So my patient is gone. Eventually, Marie was able to file a police report that night and get a temporary order of protection from the court. Sean was charged with assault, and a warrant was issued for his arrest. He was summoned by the sheriff's department the very next day to pick up that order. But he walked in and out of the office without being arrested. The sheriff's department says when they ran his name, they didn't see any warrants, even though one had been issued the night before. It wasn't until days later when Marie notified law enforcement of Sean's location that he was actually taken into custody. And then another mistake. Sean was accidentally released early. And another. Marie was never notified, even though she signed up for the state's victim notification system. A sheriff's deputy failed to follow through and would later be disciplined for it. My name is uh, Marie. I was trying to reach someone about a police report that I filed. And Marie even tried to fix the department's mistake. She called the city's non-emergency line to make sure they had her phone number. I never got a notification 
or a missed call or anything that that was that that happened. So I just want to make sure my contact info is correct. And then there were the guns. The court ordered Sean to give them up, but Tennessee has no method to enforce that ruling. And on April 12th of last year, Sean went to Marie's mom's house in a rental car. He had his guns, zip ties, and battery acid. Marie and Debbie spotted him and tried to run away, but he shot them on their neighbor's lawn. Then he shot and killed himself. In Nashville, nearly half of suspects in domestic violence homicides should not have had a gun. These barriers that Marie faced are not unique to Nashville. It's a challenge for domestic violence victims all over the country, says Ruth Glenn of the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Our systems are not set up as properly as they could be to address the unique needs of every domestic violence victim. To protect victims, Glenn says there needs to be a coordinated response, but they interact with so many separate agencies that don't work together. It creates a safety net with too many holes in it. And as Marie's case illustrates, that's a problem, especially because domestic violence abusers are incredibly determined to exploit those loopholes. When they decide that something as bad is going to happen, it's almost impossible to stop them. And Glenn says pushing through legislation to protect domestic violence victims is not easy. Federally, it took three years of negotiations for Congress to finally reauthorize the Violence Against Women Act. Sorry, if you would, go ahead. And here in Tennessee, uh, Alex yeah, took everything he learned about his sister's case and brought it to the state capitol last session. I wanted to make sure, I wanted to make sure that no one, no family had to endure what we had to go through. I realize this won't bring my mother and sister back, but I hope that it will help save others. Alex helped write four bills, but because of concerns about expenses or implementation, only one became a law. It requires more communication between sheriff's offices and the police. But Alex says it's not enough. For them, they view it as one thing that went wrong in their agency, but coupled together, they're like eight things that went wrong for this person who was dealing with the government to try and get the help that they needed. So he says he'll keep pushing to close the gaps that Marie slipped through. For NPR News, I'm Paige Flager in Nashville. Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from TIAA, dedicated to helping people secure their financial futures with lifetime retirement income. Learn more at TIAA.org slash never run out. From Angie, formerly Angie's List, dedicated to helping homeowners tackle home projects from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. From Keeper, a secure password manager designed to protect with strong encryption against account takeover, ransomware, and cyber theft. Used by millions globally. Learn more at KeeperNPR.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. 
This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. 85 degrees in Boston. Just a minute before 5 o'clock ahead, as all things considered continues, NASA scrubs today's launch of the Artemis moon rocket. They'll try again on Friday. That's ahead here on WBUR. It'll be mostly clear tonight. The lows will be around 72 degrees, mostly sunny tomorrow. The high will be around 90. Mostly sunny again on Wednesday. Some showers or thunderstorms are possible before 1. The highs will be around 89 degrees. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. You know, this is an incredibly hard business. We're trying to do something that hasn't been done in over 50 years. A technical glitch forced NASA to scrub its Artemis One rocket launch today. It's Monday, August 29th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, the Artemis One mission is part of an effort to return astronauts to the moon. Also ahead, as the U.S. Open begins today in New York, tennis fans are turning into what could be Serena Williams' final matches. The tennis icon hinted she might retire after this year's tournament. And Texas laws bar Wall Street firms from operating in the state if they stop investing in firearms and fossil fuels. An analysis shows that has cost taxpayers hundreds of millions of dollars this year. It's 5.01, now this news. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. A federal judge has, is expected to grant a motion to appoint a special master to examine documents that were removed from the home of former President Donald Trump by the FBI. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports this comes three weeks after FBI agents removed more than a dozen boxes, some containing highly classified records. The judge in the case has ordered the Justice Department to provide the court with more specific information under seal about the classified records. But University of Richmond law professor Carl Tobias says the judge's decision might be moot. There's a big question about whether the Justice Department may have already completed its review of the documents. And so there may be nothing for a special master to do if that appointment is appropriate in this situation. Trump's legal team filed the motion to appoint a special master two weeks after the FBI removed the documents. A hearing is scheduled for Thursday. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The White House is planning to hold a conference aimed at addressing hunger next month. NPR's Tamara Keith reports this will be the first event of its kind since the Nixon administration. The goal, according to a statement from Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre, is to end hunger and reduce diet-related problems like obesity and type 2 diabetes by 2030, as well as addressing disparities around those diseases. The effort will bring together government, the private sector, and nonprofits to find solutions, as well as people who have experienced food insecurity. Congress passed a bill earlier this year requiring that the White House host a hunger conference by the end of September. The initial initiative comes as pandemic-era programs aimed at addressing hunger are winding down, leaving advocates worried that Americans who have relied on those programs will struggle. Tamara Keith, NPR News. U.N. inspectors hope to make it onto the grounds of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in Ukraine this week. 
to assess current risks. Russia agreed to let the inspectors into the plant. This as active fighting goes on around it. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says the U.S. supports the inspection. We are glad uh, that the team is on its way to ascertain the safety, security, and safeguards uh, of the systems there, as well as to evaluate the staff's working conditions. Russia should ensure safe, unfettered access for these independent inspectors. Meanwhile, both sides continue to blame each other for fighting around the facility. Russia took control of the plant last spring, and officials worry that fighting near it could cause a radioactive disaster. Wall Street lower by the closing bell. The Dow down 184 points. The Nasdaq down 124. S&P 500 down 27. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Boston City Council President Ed Flynn is removing Councilor Ricardo Arroyo from his committee leadership roles for 60 days. Flynn says it's in the best interest of the council. Arroyo calls it undemocratic and without grounds. Last week, the Boston Globe reported that Arroyo was investigated for two sexual assaults when he was a teenager. No charges were filed. Arroyo is a candidate for Suffolk County District Attorney. He denies any wrongdoing and claims that he was not aware that he was investigated. Meanwhile, Councillor Frank Baker has requested the city release the Arroyo investigation files. That has prompted Councillor Kendra Lara to request police records on Baker's 1993 marijuana conviction. Gasoline prices continue to fall in Massachusetts. Today's weekly report from AAA finds a 10-cent decline since last Monday. The statewide average for regular unleaded is $4.06 a gallon. AAA Northeast spokesman Mark Shieldrop says drivers appear to be cutting back because of concerns about the economy and rising interest rates. We actually recorded the lowest gasoline demand last week for the uh, a week in August in 23 years. And uh, this comes at a time that consumers may be cutting back and cutting back on their driving for fears of a recession. Shieldrop says that prices have been falling about 10 cents a week from their high point in mid-June. Somerville Public School students will have access to MBTA student Charlie cards starting in the seventh grade. The program launched at the high school level last year. It provides pre-loaded monthly passes to students for the school year and is paid for by the district. School officials say about 2,000 students will receive the cards this year. An arrest has been made in a hit-and-run accident in Yarmouth. An eight-year-old boy was severely injured when he was hit by an SUV Saturday morning while riding his scooter. 18-year-old Jacob Gifford of Marston's Mills has been arrested and is facing a variety of charges, including leaving the scene of an accident and negligent operation of a motor vehicle. In sports, the Red Sox are out in Minnesota tonight to take on the Twins. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy tonight. The lows around 72 degrees. Mostly sunny tomorrow. The highs will be around 90. Mostly sunny again on Wednesday with some showers of thunderstorms. Likely before 1 p.m., the highs will be around 89 degrees. Right now, it's 86 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. NASA's big new moon rocket is still right here on Earth. This is Artemis Launch Control. With an update, Launch Director Charlie Blackwell-Thompson has called a scrub for today of the attempt of 
launch of Artemis 1 and the Space Launch System with the Orion spacecraft. That was the sound of the rocket's first launch attempt being called off this morning. NASA hoped the rocket would blast off and put a crew capsule in orbit around the moon. The critical test is necessary before the first flight to the moon with astronauts on board, but a technical glitch kept the rocket grounded. NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce joins us from Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Hey, Nell. Hey there. What happened? Well, everything was looking good. The weather was even mostly cooperating. Um, they had some much-dreaded hydrogen leaks while they were filling the fuel tank. That was a problem that had cropped up in dress rehearsals for this launch. But they got beyond that, and they filled up the fuel tanks, so people were feeling good. But then they had another problem. Basically, they weren't able to get one of the rocket's engines to the temperature that it needed to be for launch. And had that ever cropped up in the dress rehearsals? It turns out they never tested this engine cooldown in those dress rehearsals here at Kennedy Space Center for various reasons. They did do a test of this at Stennis Space Center in Mississippi, and that had gone okay. So they were relying on that. Um, they're going back now and looking at the data, but, you know, things are a little bit up in the air right now, except for the rocket, of course. <laughs> Right. There had been such a big build-up to this launch. People were, like, camping out all weekend long. What's the mood there now that it's been scuttled? Yeah. I mean, hundreds of reporters were here. There were astronauts. Vice President Kamala Harris came down. NASA had been working towards this for a decade, and people were really excited. But launch delays are nothing new in the space business. You know, this is something this space center's dealt with lots before. And the mission manager for the Artemis Moon program is Mike Serafin, and he was pretty philosophical. Here's what he said at a press briefing. Seeing smoke and fire is something that everybody enjoys, um, but we're not gonna let another hurdle deter us from trying to achieve that next step. And um, yeah, you know, this, this is an incredibly hard business. We're trying to do something that hasn't been done in over 50 years. So this 32-story tall rocket is actually made with technology that dates back to the space shuttle days, but it's never been put together in quite this way. So it's not surprising that if you've got this big new complex thing that there'd be some, you know, problems getting it off the launch pad for the first time. And I'm sure in the Apollo days there were lots of delays, right? Right. You know, the space shuttle had delays. And in the days of Apollo, when they were developing the Saturn V rocket, there were launch delays. Although one NASA official here pointed out that in the days of Apollo, they were trying to launch a rocket to do things that had never been done before. And of course, that's not the case now. So what's the solution? Is it just unplug it and plug it back in again? <laughs> They're thinking it over. They're going to meet tomorrow and discuss it. They have another launch opportunity on Friday and one more on Monday if they can be ready by then. But if they have to take it back to the big vehicle assembly building here to do repairs, then probably you're not looking at launch before October. That is NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Thanks for your reporting. Thank you. The Ukrainian military says it is beginning attacks in the southern part of the country to take back territory captured by the Russians. Ukrainian officials have talked about a major counteroffensive for months, but the military has failed to recapture much territory. 
For more on what's happening on the ground and what it means, we turn now to NPR Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman and NPR's Frank Lengfit, who was near the front lines this morning in Ukraine's Mykolaiv region. Hi to both of you. Hey, Elsa. Hi, Elsa. So, Frank, let's start with you. How is Ukraine explaining what exactly is happening right now? You know, the Southern Command down here is saying the Ukrainian army is attacking the Russians from several directions. And I think ultimately the goal would be to take back the Kherson region and Kherson city. This is a strategic port that leads into the Black Sea. It's also symbolic. It's the only regional capital to fall to the Russians. But exactly how big this effort we're seeing just today is not clear. I've been in touch with a number of soldiers in the field today. And I asked, you know, is this the long-promised counteroffensive that we've been hearing about from the government? And one said, I hope so. Another said, things looked a bit abstract. Another said, this definitely is. And even another said, well, it's the start of something, but he wasn't quite sure what. Hmm. So I think that even in the battlefield, it's not entirely clear what's going on. And we're going to have to see how this plays out over the next few days. Okay, well, Tom, how is the Pentagon framing what's happening? Well, we had a background briefing with a senior military official, and he said, call the Ukrainians and ask them what's going on. I said, well, we're talking to you. And he said he's seen an uptick in fighting around the Kherson area, no particulars or any offensive or counteroffensive. He said Ukrainians are making some small advances, and we pressed him on it and said, you know, is this a counteroffensive or not? And he said, well, you know, there's some offensive moves. Is this a larger counteroffensive? He said, I don't know. We'll know more in the next 24 to 48 hours. And early today, I spoke with another official who also was more circumspect. He said, listen, the Ukrainians have done a really good job at shaping the battlefield, hitting Russian command centers, troop concentrations, weapon depots behind the lines in preparation for a counteroffensive. But he said it remains to be seen if this is the start of something big. You know, I was talking to a, a military intelligence official. He said, what is the goal if there is a counteroffensive? Is it Kherson? Is it somewhere else? And also, if you can seize Kherson, then what? Can you hold it? That's going to be key. I think a lot of people don't believe that Ukraine can push out Russian forces from the entire country. Okay. Well, whether this is truly a counteroffensive or not, Frank, as we mentioned, you were out near the front lines today. Did you see much evidence that Ukrainians are indeed stepping up attacks? Yeah, I did. Um, It was this small village to interview infantry. And when I arrived, I found out they'd been sent to the front lines, which was clearly a sign of something. And I was talking to the local village head, and she told me the Ukrainians had taken two villages overnight. And as I was talking to her, started to hear more and more outgoing artillery, saw more tanks, armored personnel carriers moving quickly along the roads. And finally, the press officer who was escorting us signaled me to wrap up the interview, and we quickly headed out of the village for our own safety. Well, what I want to understand is Ukrainians have been talking about a counteroffensive for quite a while now. What has been holding that up? Well, they've been making really, just like Tom was saying, they've been making really slow progress. The village where I was this morning, Elsa, in April, it was a mile from the front lines. Today, it's about six miles. So that means the progress is five miles in four months. Mm. The Ukrainians say that the Russians are well dug in. They've sent a lot more troops down to the Kherson region. And they also say that the Russians still have them outgunned. Now, in recent months, there has been a change. The Ukrainians have more long-range, more precise weapons. We're talking about what are called M777 howitzers from the Americans, as well as the HIMAR rockets, which are, frankly, the Ukrainian troops rave about. I even saw some uh, last week launch from a field. They're highly effective and accurate, but the Ukrainians keep saying they simply don't have enough of these, which also raises the question, you know, 
can you mount a big offensive and be successful without more of these heavy weapons? And, and along those lines, they're also, over a week ago, the Pentagon said, we're going to send dozens of armored vehicles, MRAPs they're called, up-armored Humvees, and also armored vehicles with rollers on the front to detonate mines, which you would need for some sort of a counteroffensive. Also surveillance drones and also kamikaze ones that could attack Russian armor or troop concentrations. That was just a little over a week ago. All that stuff would be vital in a counteroffensive. The question is, has it arrived yet? And we really don't know at this point. But that tells you they clearly are preparing for something big. Well, Tom, can you just explain why a counteroffensive, particularly now, is so important for Ukraine? Well, again, the Ukrainians and some Western officials have been telegraphing a counteroffensive for a while now. But again, just last week, a senior defense official said there's been little movement from either the Ukrainians or the Russian forces. It's been that way for weeks. So I think as more equipment comes in from the West, Ukraine realizes it must show it can seize and also hold ground. That's important for both its citizens and also for U.S. and NATO countries. And before winter sets in, I think there has to be progress. You're going to see some voices, especially in Europe, and Frank knows this better than anyone, might start calling for talks to end the war. It's taken a huge toll, in particular, on the European economy and also its energy needs. Yeah, the greatest fear that when I talk to Ukrainian commanders is that they won't have enough weapons from their perspective and they'll end up having to go to a negotiating table with a weak hand and end up having to be in a position where they might have to cede land, which they absolutely don't want to do. Why the sense of urgency right now? In a few months, there won't be any leaves on the trees down here. This is flat farmland. And so it won't be possible to mount offensives because ah. uh, you'll have no place for cover. You'll be completely exposed. Right. And one commander I was talking to was just really anxious and said, you know, we're running out of time to be able to do much right now. That was NPR's Frank Langford and Tom Bowman. Thank you to you both. You're welcome. Great to talk, Elsa. As the U.S. Open begins today in New York, all eyes are on Serena Williams. The tennis icon hinted earlier this month that she might retire after this year's tournament. Sharon Shea traveled to New York from Fort Myers, Florida, to watch what could be Williams's final U.S. Open. She sees this as the end of an era. It'll be a while before somebody gets to her caliber. So we're going to miss watching. Shea is hardly alone in her admiration. Catherine and Kiana O'Kine are both competing in the Open this year. She's really strong. Yeah, really strong. strong And like so many others around the world, their older sister, Kiera, sees Serena Williams as an inspiration. If you think about what she's done, especially at the status that she is as a black woman, it really, like, inspires a lot of other girls to, you know, like, take charge of the sport and, like, take action in what they really want to do. Tonight's match against Montenegrin player Danka Kovanich may be the final time the world gets to see the legend in action. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. 85 degrees in Boston at 518. Ahead on All Things Considered, election officers offices upgraded their cyber defense after Russian hacking attempts, but some of those defenses were recently removed in one state, a sign of growing polarization affecting election security. That's ahead here on WBUR. In business news, developers plan to build nearly 50,000 square feet in manufacturing space in Canton for possible life sciences use. 
The new construction will be paired with the renovation of an existing 80,000-square-foot office near Route 138. The developers say a tenant has not yet been lined up, but they expect continuing demand for biotech manufacturing space in the Boston area. Wall Street today, stocks were off slightly. The Dow down 184 points, closing at 32,100. NASDAQ was off 124 points, closing at 12,018. And the S&P 500 was off 27 points at 4031. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource. Energy is at the center of how we live today. And with global energy prices increasing, the impact to families can be significant. Eversource may be able to help with their flexible payment plan options. For more information and to see if you qualify, visit Eversource.com. Looking for a staycation read? Our new pop-up newsletter is filled with great suggestions that will transport you to the sun and sand. Sign up now at WB. BUR.org slash beachbooks. In the forecast, mostly cloudy tonight. The lows will be around 72 degrees. Mostly sunny tomorrow. The highs will be around 90. Mostly sunny again on Wednesday. Some showers or thunderstorms are likely before 1 p.m. The highs around 89. Thursday should be sunny and 83 degrees. Sunny and a bit cooler around 80 degrees on Friday. Right now it's 85 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp. Connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHelp.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. After the 2016 election and Russian hacking attempts targeted at local election offices, hundreds of local governments across the country made changes, among them installing something called an Albert sensor, named after Albert Einstein, and they are designed to warn of hacking attempts. Now, though, in Washington state, this cybersecurity tool has become the subject of suspicion by some on the political right. Austin Jenkins of the Northwest News Network reports. It was Valentine's Day this past February, and the Ferry County Commission in rural Northeast Washington State was holding its weekly meeting. All right. Well, we'll call the afternoon uh, meeting to order. On the agenda that day was an update on the county fair and a discussion about a local water and sewer district. But something else happened that would send a ripple across the state. The three-member, all-Republican commission took up a proposal to disconnect the county's Albert sensor, a recently installed device that could warn the county if it was being targeted by hackers. I'll make a motion that we remove the Albert sensor or shut it down. Commissioner Nathan Davis led the effort. The vote in favor was unanimous. Bye-bye, Albert sensor. In a discussion after the vote, Davis explained his reasoning for wanting the Albert sensor gone. Because it's supposed to help with elections, yet mm-hmm. the elections aren't hooked up to our network. That's true. Voting equipment is not connected to the Internet. But hackers could still wreak havoc on an election by breaking into a county's network. They could freeze or alter websites or do other things to harm public confidence in elections. Even so, Commissioner Davis made it clear he was uncomfortable with the Albert sensor sitting on the county-wide computer network. So it's scanning everything we do on our network, 
and it sends it to a third party. That third party is the Center for Internet Security, or CIS. It's a nonprofit that gets funding from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security to help protect state and local governments against cyber threats. One of the ways it does that is through the Albert Sensor Program. The sensors monitor computer networks for traffic from known malicious IP addresses. Brian Calkin is a senior technical advisor at CIS. He says Albert sensors passively monitor for potential trouble and do not have unfettered access to a client's data. All this data is flowing through and it's all passing by the Albert sensor. And then if any one bit of it matches and says, yes, this is malicious, it's going to grab that out of the line. And then, and then capture that and send that piece off for analysis. Everything else just flows right on through. To date, more than 900 Albert sensors have been deployed across the nation. They send alerts, and federal officials say they've been a key component to better understanding the cyber threats facing states and counties. But that's also raised some concerns about Big Brother watching local government. Here in Washington state, two counties have now removed their sensors, and a third declined to install one. At that Valentine's Day meeting in Ferry County, Commissioner Davis cast a wary eye on CIS. It's a community-driven nonprofit. I mean, really? Davis appeared to be reading from a memo that had been circulating in Washington state Republican Party circles that month. That memo, authored by a local GOP chair, tried to link CIS to a network of left-leaning organizations. But until recently, Albert censors haven't been partisan, in fact, the program ramped up during the Trump administration. Word of Ferry County's decision to remove its Albert sensor soon reached Secretary of State Steve Hobbs, a Democrat. And immediately it occurred to me this was a start of perhaps a misinformation campaign directed at the Albert sensor. And I was quite concerned about it. Hobbs's office quickly convened a virtual meeting about the Albert Sensor program and invited county officials from across the state to attend. Former Washington Secretary of State Kim Wyman, a Republican, was among the speakers last February. She now leads election security efforts for the Biden administration. The Albert Sensor program is really a way for us to have one more layer of security and information that we can use to combat uh, um, people who would do our system harm. The presentation ended with Hobbs making a direct appeal to skeptical county officials. I am pleading with you is that if you do not have an Albert sensor, get the Albert sensor. If you have removed the Albert sensor or thinking about removing the Albert sensor, please reconsider. That plea was not compelling to Ferry County Commissioner Nathan Davis, who has a background in IT and who says he still has questions about how Albert sensors work. In an interview, Davis also said he finds it odd that anyone cares whether his little county, with barely more than 7,000 people, has one or not. Why the hard push? You know, they're, you know, what are the true motivations? You know, the push so hard on something that really doesn't do a lot. Cybersecurity expert Matt Blaze of Georgetown University offers an answer. He says these days, even little counties face global cyber threats. And the analogy that I often use here is that we don't ask the uh, county sheriff to be responsible for repelling military invasions. But that is really the equivalent of what they're up against uh, on the internet. Despite Ferry County's decision, the majority of Washington's 39 counties have Albert sensors. In the words of one county auditor, we're a happy customer. 
For NPR News, I'm Austin Jenkins in Olympia, Washington. All right. Listening along to that story with us is NPR's Miles Parks. He's with me now. He covers voting and he co-reported this story with Austin Jenkins. Hey, Miles. Hi there. So you've been covering all this, been covering elections since these censors were rolled out to local governments. How should we see this episode in the bigger context of trying to understand what's happening with misinformation and American elections? So election experts are definitely noticing a trend here. As one voting expert told me, Election deniers are using the language of election integrity to dismantle the infrastructure of election integrity. Basically, people who are being informed by misinformation are using it to justify changes that will make U.S. elections run worse. Hmm. We're seeing this in some counties where there are pushes to go back to hand-counting ballots as opposed to machine counts, even though we know hand counts are more expensive, they take longer, and more importantly, they're less accurate. I also reported a story earlier this year on conspiracies targeting a voter registration tool that helps election officials keep their voter rolls up to date and prevent fraud. Um, okay. And now this twist of we're seeing that same movement turning its sights on cybersecurity? That's right. I talked about this with Matt Masterson, who oversaw election security efforts within DHS leading up to the 2020 election. He said this cybersecurity tool is not only important for protecting the individual counties, but it's the best tool that the federal government has to see the entire landscape of what's happening in cyberspace at these local election offices. It's okay to ask legitimate questions about what are the purpose of these devices? What do they do? I think, I think that is natural. I think that's the right thing. What is not appropriate is to make up or invent or lie about what these devices do and therefore hurt the overall security of our elections in the United States. That is what's frustrating. None of this is based on fact. At this point, these are the only two counties that we know about that have disconnected from this program. But we're definitely going to be watching across the country to see if Republicans in other places start targeting this system, which, to be clear, up to this point has been a bipartisan success story. Going to be a busy fall. NPR's Miles Parks, thanks for your reporting. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 85 degrees in Boston at 529. Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll hear from a climate scientist on what impact climate change is having on pathogenic diseases. That's ahead here on WBUR. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy tonight. The lows around 72 degrees. Tomorrow looks nice. It'll be mostly sunny. The highs around 90 degrees. Good beach day. Mostly sunny again on Wednesday. Some showers or thunderstorms likely before 1 o'clock. The highs will be around 89 degrees. Thursday should be sunny and 83. Sunny and a bit cooler around 80 degrees on Friday. Again, right now it's 85 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News, reminding you that your public radio station is a service and the people who use that service are the largest single source of support for that service. Your old car can play a role. It can help pay for the producers, editors, and audio engineers and others who create Morning Edition every day. Your old car can do that. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. 
NASA canceled the test launch of its new moon rocket today after a series of last-minute problems, including trouble related to one of the four main engines on the massive SLS rocket. Mike Safran is manager of the Artemis mission. The combination of not being able to uh, get the uh, engine three chilled down and then the uh, vent valve uh, issue that they saw at the inner tank really caused us to pause today, and, and we felt like we needed a little, little more time. The 322-foot unmanned rocket was set to lift off this morning from Florida on its first test flight into orbit around the moon. Artemis 1 has two more launch opportunities, one on Friday and another one one week from today. Bans are now in effect in Texas and Tennessee for nearly all abortions. Blake Farmer of member station WPLN tells us advocates of abortion rights are pushing for exceptions to those prohibitions. Abortion rights opponents often portray pregnancies occurring from rape or incest as rare. Survivors of sexual assault say that's not the case. Nashville's Sexual Assault Center plans to approach Republican lawmakers with the help of lobbyist Heather Michelle, who says those talks will be blunt. We're going to be civil in doing it. We're going to work across the aisle and try to pull people together on this. But we will be having hard, difficult conversations with the real ugly truth about it. Michelle says they need to limit expectations. Right now, the authors of Tennessee's abortion ban say it's written precisely as they intended without the rape and incest exceptions. For NPR News, I'm Blake Farmer in Nashville. Stocks finished lower on Wall Street today. To begin the week, tech companies saw some of the biggest losses ahead of updates on consumer confidence out tomorrow and the monthly jobs report on Friday. The Dow was down 184 points, about half a percent. Tech-heavy Nasdaq was down 1 percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Boston City Council President Ed Flynn is temporarily stripping Councilor Ricardo Arroyo of his leadership of two committees and his position as Council Vice Chair. Arroyo, who's running for Suffolk County District Attorney, is facing questions after two sexual assault investigations from more than a decade ago resurfaced last week. WBUR's Walter Wuthman has more. The investigations into Arroyo never led to charges, but have now blown open the DA's race. Several high-profile allies quickly pulled their endorsements of Arroyo, including Council President Flynn. Now, Flynn thinks it's in the best interest of the council to strip Arroyo of his leadership roles. Arroyo says the removals have no grounds and will impact his work on the redistricting committee. Arroyo denies the allegations and accuses acting DA Kevin Hayden, or one of his campaign supporters, of leaking the files for political benefit. Hayden says his office did not leak the documents. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. A new tribute near the State House honors those who have died of drug overdoses. Today, state and local officials planted 20,000 purple flags on Boston Common. Each represents a Massachusetts resident who died of an overdose in the last 10 years. Today, the governor also said that Wednesday will be Overdose Awareness Day in the state. South Boston Congressman Stephen Lynch is leading an effort to increase oversight of a company that offers buy-now-pay-later financing on gun purchases. Lynch and more than a dozen other members of Congress have sent a letter to Cradova Financial. It asks the company for information on how many customers default on the no-interest loans and whether there are any protections to prevent guns from being immediately resold. Lynch says he's worried the easy lending arrangements will result in increased gun violence and mass shootings. A Cambridge police officer has pleaded not guilty to drunk driving charges. Investigators say 57-year-old Michael Danilik ran a red light this morning and crashed into three motorcyclists at Broadway and Columbia Street. 
All those who were hurt are expected to survive. The officer was off duty and is now on administrative leave. Sports, the Red Sox take on the Twins tonight out in Minnesota. In the forecast, mostly cloudy tonight. The lows will be around 72 degrees, mostly sunny tomorrow. The high is around 90, mostly sunny again on Wednesday. Some showers and thunderstorms are likely before 1 p.m. The high is around 89. Right now it's 85 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. We often talk about the impact climate change will have on us in big, visible ways, like floods, fires, and storms. A new study published in Nature this month looks at much smaller ways climate change may affect us, microscopic ways. Climate scientist Camilo Mora of the University of Hawaii was one of the authors of the study, and he told me part of their motivation was to see if climate change had anything to do with the outbreak of COVID-19. We just don't know yet. But what I can tell you after doing this work is that I can tell you at least 20 different ways in which COVID-19 could have been caused by climate change. So I asked him to explain the connection between climate change and diseases caused by microorganisms like viruses and bacteria. What is happening is that there are many ways in which climate change is actually forcing these species to get into contact with us. And by increasing those contacts, it turns out that the amount of pathogens that are in the wild are having a higher chance to come in and making us all sick. And what we did in this paper was to quantify the magnitude of how how big of a deal this is. Give us one story, one example that illustrates how this works. So one example that I like very much is imagine that in the middle of the jungle, in the middle of nowhere, there is a bat and that bat obviously has their own pathogens that they have been accumulating for hundreds of years, but they are over there and we are over here. So there is never really a contact. There is no risk for us from that bat. Now imagine we producing greenhouse gases, we produce a lot of uh, heat, with that heat comes drought, and with that drought comes at times wildfires. Now this bat that is in the middle of the jungle, in the middle of nowhere, creating no pain to us, has to fly around to find food, water, and sometimes habitat by it flying farther away. Sometimes it comes upon contact with us. And that single moment when the animal with that pathogen get in contact with us is called a spillover. And from there, once that spillover happens, it, that's it. I mean, mm. that that unleashes an incredible amount of human suffering, like just like, for instance, what did happen with COVID-19. So the top line takeaway is that climate change is going to make us more or less susceptible to these kinds of diseases. The, the way that I put it is like, imagine that I'm going to get into a fight with Mike Tyson. Now, on top of that picture, put three other fighters like Arnold Schwarzenegger, <laughs> Sylvester Stallone, and Jackie Chan. And now you have those Mike two Mike Tyson, guys. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jackie Chan, and Sylvester Stallone. Okay. Oh, uh, no, I think that they can beat my, they can, they can keep my butt for sure. Okay. But the, the analogy goes that I cannot endure one of them. Forget about enduring the four of them. You can see heat waves everywhere around the world, wildfires, floods, you name it. That That's nothing compared to what is coming. Right now, the planet has warmed up by just one degree, and we predict that in worst-case scenario, it could warm up at to five. So take all of these things that we think are bad, multiply by five, 
and that's how potentially bad could this be. Even if all carbon emissions stop tomorrow, the Earth will still continue heating up from the decades of human activity up to now. So how do infectious disease experts need to adapt to a planet that will warm no matter what we do? The priority should be on mitigation of this problem. Because, yeah, you are right. We, this is going to be bad. But what I'm saying to you is if we don't do anything, this is going to be a lot worse. The chances that we're going to be able to adapt to this are going to be so overwhelming. Just think about what it costs us to adapt to COVID. Those are one in a 1,000 years diseases. Imagine these things happening every 10, every 15 years. We are not going to be able to cope with this. When you look at the diseases that we're struggling with right now, from COVID to monkeypox to polio, do you see a climate change connection? Oh, the, the connection is right there. It's just mind-blowing. And in fact, I live, it, I, I, I live through that in my own country. Back in the day, I came for a holiday. In Colombia. Hawaii, in Colombia. And I'm thinking that I'm a strong guy. And, you know, Colombians, we like to feel like we are the jungle guys. And I come here and I, forget, I refuse to use mosquito uh, repellent. And I get bitten by a mosquito. It turns out that that mosquito had chikungunya, and I got infected with this disease. My skin is all full of blisters for a week. It was painful to this day. I had the pain of this on my joints. Come to discover, as I was doing this paper, that the reason why that outbreak was happening was because there was, there was so much rain on all South America that it just created this balloon of mosquitoes around the world, and it just happened that day. Chinkungunya, which was pretty rare in a very remote place with so many mosquitoes, the chances were there for that, for that virus to go and infect everybody. And I paid the consequences of this. Camila Mora is a climate scientist at the University of Hawaii, speaking with us from Colombia. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jerry. I appreciate it. Texas is banning state and local government agencies from doing business with financial firms that they say are, quote, boycotting the gun and fossil fuel industries. It's a move other Republican-led states are following. But experts say the shift in Texas is already costing taxpayers hundreds of millions of dollars. Texas Public Radio's David Martin Davies reports. Republican Texas State Representative Phil King introduced his bill a year ago last April, saying it would stop Wall Street firms from discriminating against the fossil fuel industry. Wealthy investment managers are denying capital to energy companies, wielding their money and power with one simple goal in mind, destroying the oil and gas industry. This bill sends a strong message to both Washington and Wall Street that if you boycott Texas energy, then Texas will boycott you. King's bill prohibits Texas agencies from investing in companies that choose not to invest in fossil fuel companies because of the financial cost of climate change. Minutes later, the same committee heard a proposal for a similar bill from State Representative Giovanni Cabriglion. This one aimed at firms divesting from the gun industry. I'm here to speak to you today about House Bill 2558, which prevents firearm lending discrimination by banks. This bill is supported by the National Shooting Sports Foundation and the National Rifle Association. Cabriglione argued cutting off capital and banking services to the gun industry threatens the Second Amendment. Both of these bills passed, and Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed them into law. They're aimed at ESG, or environmental, social, and governance policies. These are policies companies say that are good business because they address the risk they face from things like climate change. 
but Texas Comptroller Glenn Hager called ESGs an opaque and perverse system where financial companies use their clout to push a social and political agenda. Last week, Hager banned 10 firms from doing business with Texas after he determined they did not support the fossil fuel industry enough, including BlackRock, Goldman Sachs, and J.P. Morgan. The result is it's costing Texans. Daniel Garrett of the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania studied the impact of Texas anti-ESG laws on the state's municipal bond borrowing. He says the top five lenders left the Texas municipal bond market because they wouldn't support the manufacturing of AR-15-style weapons, the kind of gun used in the Uvalde school massacre. The banks definitely think they're having an impact. They think these policies are worth leaving Texas over. Garrett estimates the Texas laws have reduced competition and cost Texas taxpayers an extra $300 to $500 million so far this year in extra interest. Still, those firms are sticking with their ESG policies. For NPR News, I'm David Martin Davies in San Antonio. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. When the pandemic upended schools in 2020, the federal government made school meals free for every child. That policy is ending this fall, but in a few states, including Maine, lawmakers have decided to make free meals permanent moving forward. Maine Public Radio's Robbie Feinberg visited one lunchroom to see the impact of the change. Let's try this. Inside the cafeteria at Wyndham High School in southern Maine, workers slice green onions and whisk together sauces as part of a training to get ready for the upcoming school year. The district prides itself on its deviations from traditional school lunch fare. Today they're making poke bowls using fresh fish. Director Jeannie Riley says it's always been a busy operation here, getting food to a district with more than 3,000 kids. But she says that operation went into overdrive when the pandemic hit and they started delivering meals to families across the district. Even as kids have returned to their classrooms, the work hasn't stopped. We are so busy and the, and the volume of food that we're going through is just unbelievable. You know, just we're always, you know, running out, not being able to fully anticipate how many meals we're going to serve because we've never been able to offer meals for free. Despite the extra work, Riley says she's thrilled with the results so far. During the last school year, the district served around 45 percent more meals than it did before the pandemic. Schools across the state say they've also seen a lot more kids getting school meals, helping to erode the perception that the meals are only for low-income students. And Wyndham High School teacher Elizabeth Moran says if a kid is irritable or acting up in class, she'll often tell them to go get a free breakfast. When they come back, she says, they're calmer and more focused. It lets them take a walk, they get to clear their head, they get something in their bellies, it's all good. Once the pandemic hit and these waivers came out, I think it just thrusts to the forefront just how important these meals are, how many kids and families rely on these meals. 
Justin Strasberger with the nonprofit Full Plates Full Potential says the last few years have made it clear that meals are as essential as buses or books in a state where one in five children is food insecure. That experience, he says, was a big reason that Maine lawmakers ultimately voted to make free school meals permanent for every public school student at an estimated cost of around $34 million per year. I think the political will was there in part because we were able to make the argument of, listen, we've been doing this for you know a year and a half, two years at this point. Why would we go back? It makes no sense to go back. And local officials say the law comes at a crucial time, with inflation pushing up food prices for many families. But schools are also still contending with bureaucratic hurdles. That's because the number of students who qualify for free and reduced-price lunch is still a go-to measure used to determine everything from whether a school is eligible for certain grants to federal funding for extra programs and teachers in relatively low-income areas. So it could mean a teacher in a school. If you really want to put it that way. Jane McLucas with the Maine Department of Education says schools are working hard to ensure that all families still fill out the forms. Despite those hurdles, teachers and school officials say they're glad that school meals will still be free come fall. After seeing just how big of a difference this food can make, many can't imagine going back. For NPR News, I'm Robbie Feinberg in Wyndham, Maine. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. 85 degrees in Boston at 548. Ahead on WBUR's All Things Considered, the new album from Antonio Sanchez sees the legendary jazz drummer reinterpreting songs from artists in other genres. That's ahead here on 90.9 WBUR. In the forecast, mostly cloudy tonight with a low around 72 degrees. Mostly sunny tomorrow. The highs will be around 90 degrees. Mostly sunny again on Wednesday with some showers or thunderstorms likely before 1 p.m. The highs will be around 89 degrees. Thursday should be sunny around 83 degrees. Sunny and a bit cooler around 80 degrees on Friday. Right now it's 85 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. With RICO, you sort of establish this idea of a criminal enterprise, and you say, okay, here's how it works. In the case of the mafia, that's pretty obvious, right? To make money by running all kinds of rackets. But in this case, if Fonnie Willis really is putting together a RICO case, the idea, ostensibly, is that the criminal enterprise is the Trump campaign itself. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. You can read all about it all month long. We're sharing ideas and favorite picks for summer reading, including some with a New England twist. Get in on all the fun at WBUR.org slash beachbooks. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, offering solar and battery storage renewable energy solutions for your home or business. Learn how you can build a resilient future at sunbugsolar.com. Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter. People come up to me and thank me for supporting WBUR, something that they believe in. Those are the people we want to reach, people that not only support and believe in what BUR does, but believe in what businesses that support BUR stand for. 
Explore how you can become a WBUR underwriter at WBUR.org slash sponsorship. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The drummer Antonio Sanchez has an alter ego born out of something Donald Trump said in 2016. The phrase was, we have some bad hombres here and we have to get them out. So I decided to take the bad hombre phrase and kind of uh, making it my own and making it into something positive. At first, that bad hombre alter ego just needed an outlet for the anxiety of that political moment. What I did back then was to do a lot of drum improvisations to get some of that anger out. Like you're literally beating on a drum to, to exercise the <laughs> Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's a great therapy, bet, let me yeah. tell you. <laughs> that percussive therapy turned into an album, the first volume of his bad hombre project, which came out in 2017. I started realizing that I had all this power down there in my studio and I could do things as if I was a mad scientist in my laboratory. And it was so liberating that I, of course, I wanted to, to keep doing music this way. And that's how Shift was born. Shift, the name of a new album as Bad Ombre. This time Sanchez, a Grammy-winning jazz drummer who scored the movie Birdman, he reached out to artists in other genres to reimagine their work. The idea came to him as he watched a friend perform in Mexico City, the singer-songwriter Silvana Estrada. I went to her show and of course uh, she blew me away as she always does, but then she did this solo piece. just her with her quattro guitar and uh, it's a very haunting beautiful melody and it, it talks about the disappearance of women in Mexico which is a huge problem that's still going on to this day and uh, as she was performing this song the wheels just kind of started turning in my head and then after the show I asked her would you mind giving this song to me would that be okay and she said yeah of course and she sent it to me and then I started little by little adding things. Adding drum beats, repeating sections, layers and layers of things. I worked on it for a couple of months and when I sent it back to her, she was blown away because she told me I had never thought that my music, this tune in particular, could do that. So you took that as a template and went to all kinds of artists. There are big names on here, Dave Matthews. There are others who I was not familiar with until I listened. How did you decide which artists to reach out to? And what was your pitch? Well, the pitch was, if you could give me something that it doesn't matter if it's new, if it's old, it can be a sketch. I can work with anything. I kind of wanted the artist to feel like they didn't have to work too much for this project because I'm the least famous person in the whole record. So, <laughs> you know, I didn't, I didn't want to bother them too much. Were any of the artists, when you sent it back, were they like, dude, you ruined it? <laughs> 
good. It didn't. I didn't want to have synthesizers and 18 layers of drums on here, or I would have written it that way. Well, the risk was definitely there, and every time I would send the email with the track. I would always be very afraid, you know, of that they wouldn't like it. You know, that was, that was of course part of the insecurity of being an artist, and it's also the subjectivity of being an artist. But I really wanted to be truthful to the song, so that you know the artist would feel like I was true to their to their baby. So there's one song I want to ask about that I am was so curious about. This is The Bucket. You made it with a musician named Becca Stevens. And I gather she had stumbled upon a piece of writing by an inmate uh, at Oregon State Penitentiary who had started writing poetry. And the two of you decided to turn it into a song. In these concrete tombs... Yeah, it was amazing. She found the soliloquy of this play, which a group of inmates, um, they won an award for this play called The Bucket. And then she found it, wrote music to it. She sent it to me. I did my thing, completely transformed it. And then we realized we needed permission from Sterling Cunio, who spent nine years in solitary confinement. So Becca sends me a text and she says, I'm on with Sterling on the phone. Please get on Zoom right now. So I got on Zoom. It was a very humbling, strange experience. He sounded so peaceful in there. And he was he was also very honored that we use his words for a project like this. And um, as a matter of fact, two months ago, he was released. His sentence was commuted by the governor of Oregon. So it's incredible. He's out there now doing talks about his experience in prison. Quite remarkable. I got to ask about the voice who kind of MCs the album. It's not you, it's your grandfather. Bienvenidos, señoras y señores. He's 97 years old. Tell me who he is and why you wanted him to, to bookend both the opening and the closing track here. So my grandfather, his name is Ignacio Lopez Tarso, and he's one of the most famous, revered actors in Mexico. So I thought it would be amazing if my grandfather was the master of ceremonies, the MC of the whole record, and he basically invited people to come over and listen. So I imagined like the, your typical Mexican plaza on a Sunday morning with the guy uh, playing this little organ, which is always out of tune, uh, the, the children playing, and then all, all of a sudden, I imagine the voice of my grandfather saying, welcome everybody, please step up, you know, come in and listen to the music. It's amazing for me to have my grandfather's voice in the beginning and at the end just thanking everybody for their presence. I was going to ask, what's he saying on the way out? <laughs> yeah, yeah. basically, it's, it's just, thank you for your presence, and please keep listening, because the bad hombre has a lot of secrets that's still there for you to find. <laughs> <laughs> Are you teeing us up for volume three? <laughs> Are oh, you done? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. This is something that has given me so much joy and so much freedom, so much artistic freedom that, you know, I just really want to keep going with this. 
Honorable Antonio Sanchez, this was a total pleasure. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. That is the drummer and, as you heard, multi-instrumentalist Antonio Sanchez. His new album, Shift Bad Ombre Volume 2, is out now. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features, presenting Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul, a comedy about a megachurch pastor and his wife who'll do whatever it takes to save their congregation, in theaters and streaming on Peacock Friday. From X Chair, ergonomic home and office chairs, at home or in the office, X-Chair offers dynamic, variable lumbar support, as well as LMAX heating, cooling, and massage technology at xchair.com. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments is a fiduciary, which means they always put clients' interests first. Fisher Investments, clearly different money management. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. 85 degrees at a minute before 6 o'clock. Just ahead on All Things Considered, a look at relief efforts in Pakistan following catastrophic flooding. That's ahead here on WBUR. In the forecast, mostly cloudy tonight. The lows around 72 degrees. Mostly sunny tomorrow. The highs around 90 degrees. Mostly sunny again on Wednesday with some showers of thunderstorms likely before 1. The highs will be around 89 degrees. Right now it's 85 degrees in Boston. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The scale and the extent of this disaster is is really enormous. It's uh, spread over a very, very large geographic area. It is affecting a very huge population. Monsoon rains have caused extreme flooding in Pakistan this summer. It's Monday, August 29th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, flooding in Pakistan has left more than 1,000 people dead since June. We'll hear about relief efforts in the region. Also ahead, a new poll notes that fear is a rising reality among people of color. Americans of color were more likely than white Americans to say they feared being threatened or physically attacked. And most people think sweat can be stinky. And while we work hard to remove that smell, a stinky sweat could actually be a signal for something good. Marketplace is coming up at 6.30. It's 6.01. Now this news. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. Ukraine's military has stepped up attacks against Russian forces in southern Ukraine. As NPR's Greg Myrie reports, the move may be the start of a counteroffensive that Kyiv has been talking about for weeks. Ukraine has clearly signaled that it wants to recapture the southern city of Kherson, seized by Russia in the early days of the war. And Ukraine's military carried out multiple new attacks in the region, but it did not say explicitly whether this is the major operation that's been openly discussed. In Washington, a senior U.S. defense official says Ukraine's intent is not yet clear. The official said, quote, they've started an offensive of some sort, we just don't know the level. Ukraine has put up fierce resistance throughout the war, but hasn't yet shown the ability to retake cities and towns captured by Russia. 
Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. In Texas, gubernatorial candidate Beto O'Rourke is holding virtual campaign events today. He put in-person rallies on hold after being hospitalized with a bacterial infection last week. Julian Aguilar from the Texas Newsroom has more. O'Rourke, a former congressman from El Paso, became ill Friday and was later diagnosed with a bacterial infection at Methodist Hospital in San Antonio where he was administered antibiotics and told to rest, his campaign said in a statement Sunday. O'Rourke is challenging Republican Governor Greg Abbott for Texas governor and was in the middle of a multi-week trek across Texas when he paused in-person activities. It's unclear when he'll return to the campaign trail. The events Monday include the virtual launch of the Latinos con Beto coalition. That will include famed labor and civil rights leader Dolores Huerta and Texas-born actress and activist Eva Longoria. Later, O'Rourke will speak during the virtual launch of the Black Texans for Beto coalition. I'm Julian Aguilar in El Paso. The federal government is about to stop making COVID-19 test kits free to people in the U.S. NPR's Grace Newton reports the Biden administration says the program has run out of money. A new message on the federal government's coronavirus website announces the suspension of the program that allows residential households in the U.S. to order free at-home coronavirus testing kits beginning September 2nd. The announcement attributes the program's pause to Congress's lack of funding to replenish the nation's stockpile of tests. The White House sent out the first round of test kits in January, and by May, the Biden administration announced that 350 million tests had been given to 70 million households, accounting for more than half the households in the U.S. The program will continue accepting orders until Friday. For NPR News, I'm Grace Newton. In Florida, last-minute problems, including unexplained trouble related to an engine, forced NASA to scrub the launch of its new moon rocket on an uncrewed test flight today. The next attempt will be Friday at the earliest. Wall Street lower by the bell, the Dow down 184. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is asking for federal and state help to reverse service cuts on the MBTA. Key leaders said last week that subway lines and 43 bus routes will run at reduced frequency this fall. The T is citing staffing shortages. The mayor today is asking the Biden administration and the state's congressional delegation, along with the MBTA, to work together to accelerate hiring. She also wants public progress reports on hiring. Thousands of purple flags are planted on Boston Commons Liberty Mall in front of the State House. They are there to remember the Massachusetts residents who died over the past 10 years from drug overdoses. Deirdre Calvert is the director of the, De- of the Bureau of Substance Addiction Services for the Department of Public Health. She hopes the 20,000 newly planted flags will bring overdoses and addictions to the forefront. Remembrance, memory, awareness, compassion, that maybe this visual representation will, will startle people maybe, that this is, this is how many lives we've just lost in the last 10 years. So I'm, whatever this means to people, I just hope it means something. Calvert says tables are also set up on the common for people to access treatment information and ways to get help. The average price of gasoline in the state continues its downward trend. The average is now $4.06 a gallon. That's down 42 cents in the past month and a penny since yesterday. AAA Northeast points out the prices remain relatively high in the Northeast as compared with the rest of the country because inventories in the area are lower. Nationally, the average price is $3.85 a gallon. Cambridge will be getting its drinking water from the Massachusetts Water Resources Authority, or MWRA, beginning tomorrow. That's because a water test came back high for PFAS chemicals. 
Those chemicals don't break down over time, and studies have linked them to health problems. Cambridge Water Department Managing Director Sam Corda is, says the city is making the change, even though the state has questioned the accuracy of the test. Typically in Cambridge, we've had higher numbers in September than any any other month of the year. So to make sure that no one has any issues, especially the sensitive population, which would be pregnant women, infants, and immune deficient individuals, we're being proactive in switching over to the MWA water. Corda says Cambridge will remain on MWRA water until new filters can be installed to remove PFAS chemicals from its original supply. In sports, the Red Sox are out in Minnesota tonight to take on the Twins. In the forecast, mostly cloudy tonight. The lows will be around 72 degrees. Mostly sunny tomorrow. The highs will be around 90. Mostly sunny again on Wednesday with some showers and thunderstorms likely before 1 p.m. Right now, it's 84 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. RWJF.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. When we haven't been talking this summer about extreme drought, we've been talking about extreme flooding. The latter is what's happening now in many parts of Pakistan. Huge monsoon rains have led to flooding that has killed over 1,100 people in the country since June. About half a million people are displaced and living in refugee camps now. Many more are with friends or relatives. And more heavy rain is expected in September. Farah Noreen is the Mercy Corps Director for Pakistan. She joins us now from Islamabad, Pakistan. Welcome. Thank you very much, Elsa. Can you just tell us, Farah, what is it like where you are right now? Can you just paint a picture of what you're seeing at the moment? Yes, yes, I would very much like to do that. Um, uh, what happened uh, this summer uh, was a very early start of monsoon. So it, it started somewhere in June, where normally it would start in, in July. And then we saw a pretty much unstoppable rain in large parts of the country, especially in the south. Mm -hmm. So provinces like uh, Balochistan uh, sees very little uh, rainfall. And this time around, the rain has been going on for the last two months. And uh, more and more areas are coming underwater because of, uh, of the flash flooding. And what we're seeing now is large population displaced because of the floods and many of them residing in kind of makeshift tents by the sides of the roads or in schools or in other places where they're finding safety. Right. I know that right now you're coordinating a response for all the people who have been displaced by this flooding. About how many households do you estimate you'll be working with in the coming weeks and months? So one thing that I would like to highlight is that the scale uh, and the extent of this disaster is is, is really enormous. It's uh, spread over a very, very large geographic area. It is affecting a very huge population. Uh, Mercy Corps has been present in some of these flood-affected areas from before with our ongoing programming, especially our health programs. So uh, we are responding in, in one particular part of Balochistan by providing the immediate relief that's needed to the affected population, such as food and other items, especially health and hygiene-related items that the population needs. And, and how challenging is it getting food and water right now to the hardest-hit areas? So access definitely is an issue uh, for two reasons. The the roads have been damaged and are underwater, and then the, the, the flood water itself 
and and we are trying to reach a lot of this population have mm -hmm. existing uh, presence in many of these areas and we're able to collaborate uh, with the uh, local health department the government health department to bring health services to the communities uh, especially those who are in tents or in a in a camp situation well of course, what you're seeing, this more intense flooding now, it's an expected consequence of climate change. And I know that you and your organization point out that Pakistan contributes less than 1% of the world's carbon emissions. So let me ask you, if it were up to you, what would you ask of countries with higher carbon emissions? What would you ask them to do to help Pakistan deal with a crisis like this? I think what's happening in Pakistan is a clear indication of where the world is headed. And I would like to remind uh, the wealthier nations uh, to to really pay attention to what's happening in the world because because of the climate change and, and make responsible decisions. The world uh, is coming in aid of Pakistan. We are hoping that more money will be mobilized, but that is to provide relief and I hope eventually recovery. Uh, to this population, but that's not going to address the underlying right. uh, issue. So, so I would just like to remind uh, everybody to pay attention to what's really causing it. That is Farah Noreen from the humanitarian organization Mercy Corps speaking to us from Islamabad, Pakistan. Thank you very much. Thank you. More than a quarter of American adults say they live in fear of being attacked in their own neighborhoods. That's according to a poll by NPR, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. NPR's Alana Wise reports. Americans of color were more likely than white people to say they feared being threatened or physically attacked. 19% of white Americans say they had this concern, compared to 25 and 26% of black and Latino respondents. 21% of Asian adults shared that concern. None, however, said they lived in fear more than Native Americans, of whom 36% said they were fearful for their personal safety. You know, growing up, we went through the era when it was you know, just open racism about being Alaska Navy. Paul Altaguk is an Inuit man living in Anchorage. He said that because many people are unfamiliar with the appearance of Alaskan Natives, they often make crude guesses and stereotypes about his race. Well, this one was really weird. I was in Philadelphia. Somebody asked me if I was an octorine. I had to look it up. Reports of hate crimes have spiked in recent years. This includes recent violent attacks on Asian Americans and the racist massacre at a Buffalo grocery store. At 65, Ongtaguk says he thinks he's aged out of some of the more overt attacks that pockmarked his youth. But he still fears for younger family members. I like to think at some point, people just realize, oh, that's just an older person. No reason to get all in somebody's face. Annette Jackson is also in her mid-60s, living 4,000 miles southeast in Texas. In her small town, Jackson, who is mixed race, says that her concerns have only grown in recent years. She has black, white, Hispanic, and Native American ancestry, and says she presents as a woman of color. I would hesitate to call the police in fear they shoot me instead of the person I'm calling the police on. There are people that ride around with the Confederate flags hanging off the back of their trucks. You know, I don't feel safe in America. Jackson says she noticed it especially after the 2016 presidential race. The night after Donald Trump's victory, Jackson says a man assaulted her in Walmart. He said Trump won and then he spit in my face 
oh my God. It's like Trump won, so they had a right to treat me any kind of way. Jackson's example was extreme, but indicative of the sort of fray in social norms that appears to be fueling widespread fear. For Bernardo Medina, his view on the root cause of these tensions is the opposite. The criminals are empowered. And the good people have to live in fear. Medina is a Puerto Rican-born American living in New Jersey. He says he fears greatly for national security and blamed Democrats in power for endangering the public. Medina pointed to the 2020 Black Lives Matter protests as proof of social discord. They deceived a lot of people with their nice talk and then took the money. So it's all a hoax. It's all a game. These protests, however, were overwhelmingly peaceful and came in response to state violence against black people. Ernesto is a black man living in the suburbs of Philadelphia. He requested to only be identified by his first name. He said that in his 37 years of life, he has never seen the public discourse dissolve this badly. I never felt discriminated against. I knew it existed, but I never felt it directly against me. Whereas now, I'm afraid that it will be because you hear about it so much more and so often. Ernesto said he and his wife have begun stockpiling supplies since the pandemic. And in recent years, he has taken firearm safety classes to prepare himself in the event that he might have to use his gun. I think the pandemic made me realize that we haven't made the progress that we did before. There's no such thing as the truth or fact anymore. And that's scary. The poll was conducted between June and July and included a sample of 4,192 adults. Alana Wise, NPR News, Washington. This summer, NPR's Science Desk is reporting on something we all need to stay alive but often take for granted. We're talking about sweat, you know, that wet stuff on your skin that cools you off. Well, it turns out that our sweat has another function, one that's invisible but super important. NPR's Michaeline Duclef explains why stinky sweat can actually be a signal of something good. Back in college, I had an embarrassing moment. My girlfriend borrowed my backpack for a weekend trip, and when she gave it back to me, she said, Michaeline, you must sweat a lot because your backpack stinks. The arm straps smell like onions. Ew! Her exact words may have been a little different, but you get the idea. As I stood there, I remember thinking, does my sweat really smell that bad? No, I don't think it does. It certainly doesn't have these really stinky, odorous molecules. That's Gavin Thomas. He's a microbiologist at York University, and he studies sweat. He says human sweat on its own is actually pretty much odorless. So most sweat is salty water. That's the sweat that cools you down. But And that's not what we're interested in. We're interested in this other type of sweat, which is produced in our underarms. This other type of sweat contains not just salty water, but also a whole cornucopia of molecules, oils, proteins, and fats. The bacteria living on our skin eat some of these compounds, and they're the ones that stink. Thomas and his colleagues have found one species of bacteria in particular, called Staphylococcus hominins, generates a very pungent odor. We've had people describe it as kind of a oniony smell, I mean, a cheesy oniony smell. They do smell pretty bad. So it's this little critter that made my backpack smell like onions. Okay, now before you start scrubbing down with antibacterial soap, there's something you need to know. These bacteria are really good for you and your skin. Without them, you're in trouble. That's Richard Gallo. He's a dermatologist at the University of California, San Diego. 
He and his colleagues have found that these bacteria actually help protect our skin from problems like eczema. And they also... They basically make a type of antibiotic. Which kills some dangerous microbes that can make you really sick. Gallo and his colleagues have also found that your body itself makes antimicrobial molecules and puts them inside your sweat. Mix all of that together and... Sweat is a almost like an antibiotic juice. And as the water evaporates, those antibiotics actually increase in, in concentration. So the next time you're hot, sticky, and maybe a little stinky, before you towel off, thank your sweat and the bacteria that eat it for helping to keep your skin safe and healthy. Michaeline Ducleff, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Ahead on All Things Considered, how in-person mental health services remain scarce in some rural areas. In business news, Boston-based alcohol delivery service Drizzly has launched a new effort to support alcohol brands owned by members of underrepresented groups. It's funding a new business accelerator program and has created a hub on its online platform to spotlight and support brands owned by people of color or who are LGBTQ. Drizzly says the goal of the effort is to remove barriers to the alcoholic beverage industry. On Wall Street today, stocks were off slightly. The Dow was down 184 points, or 0.57%, at 32,100. NASDAQ was off 124 points, or 0.66%, at 12,018. And the S&P 500 was off 27 points, or 0.28%, at 4031. Marketplace will be coming up in about 10 minutes with all the day's business news. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Fall semester starts September 19th. Semesteroff.com. And Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, with locations in Boston, Milford, and the South Shore, and now Foxborough. Learn more at youhaveus.org. In the forecast, mostly cloudy tonight. The lows will be around 72 degrees, mostly sunny tomorrow. The highs will be around 90. Mostly sunny again on Wednesday. Some showers or thunderstorms likely before 1 p.m. The highs around 89 degrees. Thursday should be sunny. The highs around 83 degrees. Right now, it's 83 degrees in Boston. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. WBUR supporters include Chevalier Theater in Medford Square, presenting The Piano Guys, Tuesday, September 13th. Tickets and info at ChevalierTheater.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. One of the goals of the new 988 National Suicide Hotline system is to make it easier for those experiencing a mental health crisis to get the help they need. But in rural states like Montana, the in-person resources to respond to and treat those people calling for help are often insufficient or non-existent. Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton explains. Randy Larimer lives in Bozeman, one of Montana's largest cities. Still, he has struggled to find help when his adult child has experienced a mental health crisis. With bipolar 2, um, basically what our family member has is a manic episode where they can run for weeks without sleep. He says these episodes have led to suicide attempts. 
Mental health professionals say crisis systems need three components. Someone for people to call, someone to physically respond, and somewhere for people to go for treatment. Montana does pretty well with that first step. There are three crisis call centers tied into the 988 system. De-escalate about two-thirds of callers, according to state data. But Larimer says when that call isn't enough, it's usually police that respond. And his family winds up in the emergency room, where the search begins for a mental health facility. But many in Montana have struggled to remain open due to staffing shortages and funding difficulties. And a lot of times you spend a significant amount of time literally begging for a a bed at a unit that can offer the help that your loved one needs. And things are even more difficult in largely rural eastern Montana. Brenda Neeland is CEO of the Eastern Montana Community Mental Health Center, which doesn't offer crisis services. She says her clients are usually hundreds of miles away from the nearest mental health facility, where wait lists can be three weeks long. That's a reality in eastern Montana that we face every single day. Rural communities across the country face these sorts of challenges, says Ben Miller, a psychologist and national mental health policy advocate. I'm afraid that what's going to happen is that a lot of individuals are going to continue to show up in the emergency department from their call to 988 or 911 unless we have a place that we can send them. He says they don't get the help they need that way and could face worse consequences like being jailed. Miller also points to research that shows one in four fatal law enforcement shootings involve someone with a serious mental illness. The ideal, Miller says, would be for states to offer mobile crisis units to de-escalate someone or transport them to a regional crisis bed where they can receive treatment. In Montana, most of the state's six crisis teams are in urban areas that can afford them. But the state is modifying its Medicaid plan to add a new source of funding. Melissa Higgins with the Montana State Health Department hopes that will increase the number of teams, especially in rural areas. Um, certainly, it's it's dependent upon each community um, and their resources, but that would be the ideal result. As for crisis treatment facilities, which have been dwindling, Higgins says the state will offer more grant funding for mental health providers to stand up additional beds. But mental health providers say that funding isn't enough. Brenda Neeland in eastern Montana says if her organization were going to start offering crisis beds in rural areas, they'd need a much larger infusion of cash. Eastern Montana Community Mental Health Center, just like every other social service provider in the state, is struggling to hire and retain employees, ever rising costs. Now is really a difficult time to look at taking on an endeavor like that. The state has an ongoing assessment that could offer up some potential solutions for the crisis system ahead of next year's legislative session. But what the legislature will fund is still unclear. For NPR News, I'm Aaron Bolton in Columbia Falls, Montana. This is what a classical guitarist usually sounds like. We're listening to Sean Sheba playing Spanish music from an album he released last year. Now the young Scottish guitarist has a brand new recording, and our reviewer, NPR's Tom Heisinger, says we're in for a wonderful surprise. Sean Sheba's new album is titled Lost and Found. One thing he apparently lost was his traditional nylon-strung classical guitar. 
What he found was this instead. That's the sound of a sleek black Mexican Stratocaster, which Sheba plays throughout the album. The song here is by Chick Corea. And if you think electric guitars are only for shredding and blasting big noise, think again. In Sheba's arrangement of a piece by jazz pianist Bill Evans, the textures are gauzy and the colors are muted. I've rarely heard an electric guitar sound so featherlight. There's a chameleon-like duality to much of Lost and Found, and it's inspired by 18th century poet William Blake, whose metaphysical work plays with opposites and disguise. Here, electric guitars don't sound like themselves, and Sheba, perhaps mirroring some of Blake's paintings, appears androgynous on the album cover, swathed in a pink tulle dress. Another touchstone of mysticism is the medieval abbess Hildegard von Bingen, whose music gets a plugged-in makeover. In place of sacred vocals, Sheba offers a psychedelic swirl of celestial light, a kind of starway to heaven. Sheba says this album is an overflowing toy box, but actually it unfolds like a clever mixtape. Music by Meredith Monk and Olivier Messiaen rub elbows with Julius Eastman and Moondog, the Viking-clad composer who, beginning in the 1940s, performed on the streets of Manhattan and slept in doorways. His lighthearted love song, High on a Rocky Ledge, thanks to Sheba's poignant strumming, takes on the gravitas of a solemn prayer. Throughout the album, the guitar substitutes for other instruments by way of Sheba's crafty arrangements. But there is one piece, Continuance, written for the guitarist by the young British composer Daniel Kidane. Listen to these meditative chords, pierced with beams of multicolored light. Sean Sheba's Lost and Found is a beguiling album where music of innocence and experience interlace and where a masterful mercurial artist compels us to hear a classical guitarist in new ways. The album is Lost and Found by Sean Sheba. Our reviewer is NPR's Tom Heisinga. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Coming up next at 6.30, it's Marketplace. Mostly cloudy tonight. The lows will be around 72 degrees. Right now, it's 83 degrees in Boston. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Malm. Committed to protecting your intellectual property one idea at a time. More at davismalm.com. D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. 
Fresh Grass Festival in the Berkshires, September 23rd through 25th. Trampled by Turtles, Taj Mahal, Del McCourty Band, Yola, and more. Freshgrass.com slash WBUR. And Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Help put cancer in the rearview mirror by donating your car, truck, boat, or motorcycle. More at DanaFarber.org slash cars.